yourself a cup of tea, sit down, and let's begin. Hello friends, and welcome back to Reading with Joy. This is my summer book club, and we are reading through Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton, and we are on chapter 7 chapter seven of nine. For all of you who have been listening along, I can hardly believe that after this week, we only have two chapters left. And I just want to say congratulations to you for reading this far. This is a challenging book, one that um, makes our our brains grow and tries the, the limits of our vocabulary. And I also want to say congratulations to me for having done a podcast every week while traveling. This week I am, uh, for the first time in this podcast, doing two of them in the same place. I am back in Colorado, and I've just loved being able to be here for a little while. And it's so wild that I'm already, uh, I just spent about two hours tonight uh, making plane reservations, and it's hard to believe that so soon I'll be back in the UK. Um, but it's been so lovely to do this book club with you, and to read through this strange and wonderful text. I know that a lot of you have found it kind of um, stretching and difficult, but I've realized as I've been reading back through it that I think that one of my favorite things about this book is that rather than just giving you arguments um, for why someone becomes Christian, because quite frankly, sometimes uh, dear GK's arguments are tumultuous and don't totally follow a straight line, what he gives us are pictures, ways to understand the world, um, things that kind of make sense with our intuitions and are kind of ways of interpreting and understanding the world. I loved this comment from Becky Avila, I think is her name, or Avella. And she said um, that Chesterton has painted images for me I'll never forget. Our daisy-making father, the difference between a closed circle and the infinitely moving cross, the head split open by trying to contain the cosmos, the dead man with the he believed in himself sign above his head. I keep wanting to talk about it all. And um, she really captured what I think is what I loved about this book uh, and what is sometimes hard to translate to other people, which is that he doesn't always give perfect arguments, but he gives these compelling images that touch into our intuitions, our deepest intuitions about the world and how those are satisfied or met in Christianity. So all that to say, go you for making this far, go me for making this far. I've so enjoyed this and I've so enjoyed reading all your comments. I've been bad at answering all of them because I've um, been back home and trying to get things done in preparation for events, which I'll talk about in a minute. But I, I love seeing your comments every single week and I read all of them. And I just love seeing the ways that you all interact with the text and you, you make me notice things I wouldn't have noticed on my own. Before I get into this week's chapter, I wanted to announce and remind all of you that I am doing live events for the podcast, kind of of the podcast, in Colorado and in North Carolina. Uh, North Carolina, the events will be on August 8th and August 9th. August 8th will be at 7 p.m. at Colonial Baptist, and it will be an evening of goodness, beauty, and live music. Uh, we'll be kind of exploring the question of why does cultivating a love of beauty matter in a world that feels so frantic and overwhelmed? I know that something that I have felt myself and often have people ask me is when we see a world that is so fraught, that's so overwhelmed with needs, with issues, with corruption, why does it matter to take moments to enjoy beautiful things in our life? And I actually believe that this is a really fundamental thing to us for many reasons 
because it keeps our hearts soft, because it makes us know what good is, makes us able to even fight for good, and many other things. So we want to address this question. So the evening will consist of um, some little talks, kind of like a live podcast, where I will address this question, and then we will also look at it through literary and musical and um, and visual means. So we'll be interweaving the talks uh, that evening with live music from me and my brother. My brother is a composer who does piano music, so he'll do some of his own compositions. And then we have a band together, the Two Benedictions. You'll get to hear some of my own original music. So we'll interweave it with live music, with um, beautiful readings. Joel is actually an audiobook reader. If you may have encountered the audiobook of The Green Ember, which has won many awards on Audible, and he's the reader for that, so I'll have him do some dramatic readings. And really just what I want people to come away from that evening with is a full soul and a sense of hope. Um, and the sense that you can be someone who brings order and beauty into a chaotic world. So that's August 8th at Colonial Baptist. And um, that event is free, but it would really help me if you go to the link in my show notes on joyclarkson.com and sign up so that we can kind of know how many to anticipate. We already have um, uh, well over 100 that are signed up for that event uh, since I just announced it last week. So we hope that it'll be a full house and I can't wait to see all of you there. And then um, the second event is kind of a more intimate event. If you want to kind of get closer, have conversations, um, it will be a tea at 10 a.m. at Lynn Custer's home in Fuquay, Verena. We will have kind of a brunch and we will um, do a kind of a little live concert for you. I'll talk about the books and music and habits that have most shaped my soul and about how to cultivate a rich and beautiful interior life. And Joel and I will just kind of be around having tea. And that event is a ticket. The tickets are $30 if you are uh, not a patron and $25 if you are. And uh, if you if you are going to come to this the evening event, it would really uh, help me and it would be delightful to have you at that other morning event. And uh, the reason we're charging tickets for that is that it'll help pay for our plane tickets to... Um, well, we have numerous plane tickets to cover this, this summer. Uh, but also it goes straight to our... Um, our financial needs for this fall. Joel and I are both doing PhDs. This will be my last round of tuition payments. And uh, while the patron, Patreon really helps me with normal costs and living costs and all those things, uh, there's always kind of this one little um, tuition hurdle to jump over. So uh, coming to that event, the ticket price will go to our airplane tickets and then also to, um, to helping us get over that financial hurdle this fall. Uh, and you're welcome. There'll probably be a love offering, but I, the other event will be free and we'll look forward to having you. So those are the two events in North Carolina. And then basically we'll be doing the evening event that we're doing in North Carolina, also in Colorado on Wednesday, I believe it is, uh, August 14th. And you can get, that's being hosted by the Anselm Society, same deal with tickets. Uh, there'll be a discount for Anselm Society members and also for patrons. Uh, you can go find all of those tickets. I would love to see so many of you there. Um, part of the reason that I wanted to plan these was just that I wanted to see people in real life. I feel like I love doing the podcast, but it's this kind of wild thing to just uh, talk into the netherworld. So being able to do these events and see people in real life is something I'm really looking forward to. So sign up for those events. I would love to see you there. And um, that is all I have to tell you. Now, without further ado, I'm going to dive into this week's chapter. Now, I must confess to you that today I'm a little short on time because I'm recording this podcast and then I need to read a friend's academic paper before I go to sleep. So I'm going to kind of cut past some of the summary and go straight to the things 
that I really took away from this chapter. And uh, this is a kind of uh, a wild and wielding chapter, but ultimately what Chesterton is trying to do is in the last chapter he talked about, or two chapters ago, I suppose, about how we how we had the sense that we needed to be loyal to life, that we would we have the sense of having our skin in the game, and that this involved kind of an optimism and a pe- pessimism that was really um, defined by a love, that we are bound to life, which means both that we cannot abandon it and that we want to make it better. So in this in this section, he asks, but what does it mean to reform the world? What does it mean to make the world better? Where do we get the idea of what better is? And really, this is a question of kind of moral law. He's asking, what is good? How can we know what good is so that we can begin to reform or move towards that? And in this, he kind of goes through and um, look at me, I'm doing the summary anyway. <laughs> he goes through it and debunks, um, debunks a few kind of ways of thinking about this. One would be that uh, things are good just because they're natural. Um, so evolution is good. Good, there really isn't anything set good. Uh, it's just kind of what comes of nature. Uh, and then the second is the idea of kind of an eternal progression that we're slowly getting better and better. And uh, for various reasons, he rejects both of these views and says instead that we have to have this kind of idea that good is a fixed thing. Uh, he says two things. Good, first, that it's a fixed thing that we can approach um, or be far away from, but that doesn't move away from us. As we, It is a fixed thing that is a fact that we can move towards. Goodness is always goodness. And this is kind of an argument against the idea of the myth of progress, which is that we're slowly getting better and better, or that morality is dependent on the time that we're living in. Because what he's saying is, we have this intuition that if slavery is bad now, it was always bad. There was never a contingent world in which it was not bad. Um, and so that's kind of what he's going for. And he gives us the, this idea of, of the New Jerusalem. So he says that it has to be fixed. And the second thing is that it has to be composite, which is again, this idea of, of the virtues not being um, overgrown or outspent, that uh, goodness would have to be something that wasn't just justice or just mercy, but that was the beautiful indication of all of them working in harmony together. So that is the general kind of gist of what this chapter is about. And so I wanted to go straight into telling you what my kind of three things I took away from it were. The first thing that came out to me in this chapter is that the myth of progress is just that. It is a myth. And what he describes this as is kind of the idea that slowly things are getting better and better and eventually we'll reach a point of utopia in which we'll all be very um, good and, and all that. Uh, and this is perhaps best summed up in a quote by Martin Luther King Jr., um, which reads, The arc of the moral universe is long, but I believe that it bends towards justice. And I am looking on Quote Investigator, and there's actually quite a lot of people who have said something to this effect. Um, and as I say this, um, please know that I am, I love a lot of the work of Martin Luther King Jr., but this quote has always rung slightly false to me, uh, because it seems to imply that things are just kind of gradually getting better and better, um, which would then, as Chesterton points out, uh, mean that we don't really need to fight um, for goodness in any way, that we, um, that it's just going to get better and better, and the longer we live, the better things will get. Now, I think maybe this could have been believed in particular moments, and, and there certainly are things that have gotten better, right? We think that 
um, it's surely a good thing that we have better medical supplies and that we can help people live longer. It's surely a good thing um, that women have more freedom in the world, that we are um, less likely to be oppressed or, or to not have legal rights to have protection and all those things. That Those are good things that are that seem, hopefully, objectively better that we've progressed in. Um, but we might say that and then assume, therefore, that history is getting better and better. But there are other areas in which perhaps we have regressed. One might think that when it comes to our use of money and the ways that there's these kind of vast injustices and disparities, um, are we really getting better in that area? Or when we think about the way that we have treated the earth, are we really getting better in that area? Or as we have uh, increased the freedom of some people, like the rich or women, uh, does that really mean that we're getting better? Because at the same time, we might be suppressing the needs um, or ignoring the justices that might be inclined towards children, towards unborn children, or even towards um, towards the poor as people become richer and richer and some people become poorer and poorer. So there are some ways in which we can think that there's this kind of myth of getting better and better and better, but it seems to me that there are some things in the world um, that are either maintaining or are getting worse. And actually, and this is what um, Chesterton points out really well, um, the myth of progress actually kind of renders us morally um, kind of lazy because if things are getting better and better, then why would we ever have to put up a fight for anything? Uh, the myth of progress kind of presents goodness as this unbeatable thing that is just kind of tearing forward and will never be beaten by the waves of darkness. But it is obvious that the waves of darkness do sometimes win. And to be moral people, we have to kind of believe in what uh, philosophers call a dramatic rather than an epic narrative. So in philosophy and theology, we talk about the difference between uh, the dramatic and the epic. And the epic says that the end is already determined um, and therefore we're all kind of pawns in this in this narrative that's eventually going to end up some particular way. And with the case of myth, the myth of progress, that would be the case, that we're all kind of tumbling towards this eventual utopia um, and so our lives may be interesting as we make choices, but ultimately they don't make a difference. But if we're really going to be moral agents um, in the world, then I don't think we can live that way. We have to live as though life is a drama or a dramatic, which is the idea that our agency, our choices actually make a difference. And um, I think the point that really came out to me in this, this chapter is that if we believe that things are getting better and better, we have no impetus ever to actually act morally or in a strong way. Uh, it's it's like Chesterton said, if we're slowly getting better and better, and that means that we're vegetarians now, but we should all be vegans later. I think it's really funny that that's the argument he picks up on. And he's very sarcastic about it. So you feel that he must be a meat eater. But he's still using this as a good point, which is he's saying that if vegetarianism is right, um, and let's say that we could argue that veganism was right, but the myth of progress would tell us, well, we'll just slowly get better and better, then it would mean that we go, well, we're, we are all becoming vegetarians right now. And eventually we should become vegans, but that's okay because we're all progressing. We're getting there. It'll happen eventually. But what Chesterton is saying is that if it's right to be a vegan, it's right to be a vegan right now, not sometime in the future. And the idea of progress, the slow progression towards, towards morality would imply that there's no real need for any urgency because things will kind of inevitably and impersonally, as, as Chesterton calls it, unfold. 
And so that really stuck out to me, um, to not buy into this myth, which is a very powerful one in our world. We can't believe in the myth of progress because ultimately it's kind of a strange form of determinism um, that actually renders us incapable of making choices. And if we're incapable of making choices, we're incapable of, of acting rightly. We have to believe that there is a good and an evil way to act in the world. Um, with regard to whatever that is, whether that's to human life or to the way that we treat um, our friends and family or to the way we treat the earth. And we can't believe that things are getting slowly better and better. We have to believe that there are right and way wrong ways to act and we have to act upon them with urgency. So that's one thing I drew out of this week. The second thing that stood out to me um, was this little passage where he talks about nature not as the picture but as the palette. And I'm gonna I'm going to read this to you. He said, God has given us not so much the colors of a picture as the colors of a palette, but he's also given us a subject, a model, a fixed vision. We must be clear about what we want to paint. This adds a further prim principle to our previous list of principles. We have said that we must um, be fond of this world, even in order to change it. We now add that we must be fond of another world, real or imaginary, in order to have something to change it to. And I really love this idea, and I think it connects with his critique of the idea that goodness is simply whatever nature is. And um, the idea that goodness is just nature untainted kind of comes from the romantics. Um, but what Chesterton is saying is that nature just does what nature does. And I love the part where he talks about nature being our sister. And really, if we're going to live morally, um, then what we're always doing is working towards a vision. And so the way that the world is becomes not the very picture itself of what goodness is, but it becomes the materials that we have to work with towards shaping a vision of the good. So if we look at nature and we say, there's well, there's no equality in nature, as he points out, um, that shouldn't lead us to believe that therefore um, we should not have equality. We should look at nature and say, these are the tools that I have to be able to work towards a vision of goodness. And then the question becomes, what is that vision of goodness? And of course, for Chesterton, it's the New Jerusalem. It's the picture that's painted by Christianity. But I think in general, this is a really good um, thing to have in our minds, is that in our lives, the way things are, um, we should think of them as tools and materials that we can use through our choice and our actions and our agency to form into the vision of the good that we have. And somehow that stuck out to me. I loved the idea of painting. And the final thing that stuck out to me um, is his really helpful analysis that the problem of evil is not something that lies in circumstances, but something that lies in the heart of man. And this he points out when he talks about um, kind of, he goes in this long epilogue about um, the ways that in his time socialists talked about the poor. And he'd say that they would say, oh, well, you know, the poor are all very um, very lawless because they grow up in such poverty and such terrible things. And I think um, Chesterton was really very sympathetic to this, and he actually was a champion of what was called at that point and was a real movement, the Christian socialists that kind of came out of Anglicanism. Um, but he's pointing out this is really, first of all, very patronizing to the poor. Um, but then also he he says that we we stop to realize that really the thing that is the most likely to make us immoral uh, and greedy is probably having too much money rather than not having enough. So what he says is basically that when we look at this problem, we see that when we ask what makes men bad, um, 
we are as likely to be bad and to make bad choices whether we are rich or poor. So the problem is not in our circumstances, it's not in something outside of us, it is in something inside of us. And he says that really to have any kind of proper view of how to make the world good again, we have to realize that the problem lies in our own hearts. It makes me think of the passage in scripture where it says, none is righteous, no, not one. Um, there's also a song that I think of from my high school years, listening uh, to Switchfoot, um, and a really beautiful song, I should feature it sometime in the podcast, uh, called Stars. And there's a line where he says, I've been thinking, maybe I am a part of the problem. Maybe I'm the chance of rain. And I think what Chesterton's getting at in this chapter is that we have to start realize, realizing that if we ever want to do good, we have to realize that the reform that we're making is not only in the world outside of ourselves, it is inside of us. I remember when I was about 14, I wanted to write this, um, I wanted to write this short story about someone who had never been exposed to evil. And I thought, if they were never exposed to evil and they had all their needs provided for, and they lived in a perfectly innocent place, would they be good? And at the heart of Christianity is the belief that none of us are good on our own. We all need to be reformed, to be loved, to be brought into fullness through relationship, right relationship with God and right relationship with others. And I think that, again, this kind of ties back into that weird kind of determinism that he's saying that if we really believe that our evil choices are purely based on the environment, whether that environment is being poor and destitute and they're being therefore being forced to, you know, steal and do various things, or purely our environment of being rich and, and drawn towards greed, then we don't really believe that we have any capacity to choose goodness. We believe that it's all out of our hands. And so by admitting that the problem is actually inside of mankind, it actually gives us a greater uh, sense of urgency and of agency also. Uh, and that really stuck out to me is to begin to realize that the problems of the world, of humanity, they do not lie entirely outside of myself. That problem of evil is in my own heart. And if I don't realize that, then I can never become an agent of the internal, um, the eternal revolution, as he calls it. So those were the three things that I kind of took away from this chapter. And I look so forward to hearing what things you took away. Uh, so check in with me on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, and I will join you all next week for chapter eight. Much love, friends.